As we move through Matthew chapter 26 in our continuing study of Matthew, we see the process of Jesus heading towards the cross, the last couple of days of his life here on earth. Uh, this whole chapter is devoted to preparing for the cross. Last week, we, or a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the preparation that God made as he set his timing in perfect place in two days on the Passover, Jesus was going to be crucified. We saw the preparation that, that the Pharisees and the religious leaders were making in their scheming minds, trying to find a way to entrap Jesus. We saw the preparation that Mary, the, uh, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, made as she, as she anointed uh, Jesus with that expensive perfume, preparing his body ahead of time for burial. And then we briefly looked at the preparation that Judas made as he was trying to get some money to figure out how he could betray Jesus. And then last week we began looking at the preparation that Jesus himself was making for his own death as, as they prepared for the Passover. And we looked at why that was important, that he celebrate that Passover. He wanted to do that with the disciples. And then today we're going to be looking at how he took that Passover and transformed it into the Lord's Supper, and why he did that and how he did that. And uh, Evan read our scripture passage this morning, uh, Matthew 26, 20 to 30. And we find that everything is building to a crescendo here, to the final end, the final event. So we come now to the time when Jesus shares the table of the Passover with his disciples in that upper room that they had found ahead of time and made all the preparation. And it's interesting as we go through Matthew and we looked at that passage here in Matthew, he doesn't give a lot of details about what's going on during that meal. Uh, in fact, in verse 20, he just says, when evening came, Jesus reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating... Okay, that's kind of what he said about the Passover meal. Um, but there's a lot, there, there's a very defined sequence of events that they practice going through the, that uh, particular meal. The tra- tradition is very clear, and all the Jews of the time followed that tradition. And the first thing that happened was the initial cup of wine mixed with water. Now, we talked about four cups of wine and the relation to that for the Old Testament uh, promises of, of God, the covenant of God to, to the people. Um, it was a custom to always dilute the wine, particularly at that point, because they're going to have four cups of wine, and this is a very sacred event, and they wanted to make sure that nobody was going to get drunk while they were uh, celebrating a very uh, sacred occasion. Then the next step of the process would be the washing of hands. Now, we wash hands before our meals, uh, you know, just out of cleanliness, But this was a ceremonial cleansing. There's a lot of religious groups around the world that go through a ceremonial cleansing of washing hands and the body, faces, things of that sort. Um, But they did this before they could actually get into the meal itself. They needed to recognize the need of personal uh, holiness, personal cleansing. That was what the act of washing the hands before that particular meal was about. Then the next step, um, excuse me, the, the important uh, thing about that was because uh, they were celebrating God's salvation, God's, uh, God's deliverance out of Egypt way back in uh, a number of 1,200, 1,500 years before. Um, and so it was important that they, had, they were to be clean as they celebrated this special event. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, if you remember, refers back to that act of cleansing uh, when he gives instructions on how to partake of the Lord's Supper as well. He says, so then whoever eats the bread and drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, in an unclean manner, in a sinful manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. The intent, of course is that when the Holy Spirit brings to our minds something that is sinful in our lives, something that needs to be taken care of, we need to confess that and ask the Lord to purify our our hearts before we partake of the bread and the cup. So there was a cleansing time, a time of ceremonial washing of hands. Now very likely it was at this time in the evening... Uh, while they were washing their hands and, and milling around, they, you know, getting up and doing what they had to do, that a familiar topic of conversation kind of popped up among the disciples. And Luke shares that with us in chapter 22. I'll be, I'm going to be going back and forth between the different Gospels to kind of give us a fuller picture of what took place that evening. In chapter 22, verse 24, he says, An argument arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Just four days earlier, remember they were at the home of Simon the leper, and he told them for the fourth time that in a couple of days he was, going to be, he was going to die, he was going to be crucified. And uh, Mary anointed his body with that expensive perfume to prepare him for the burial. And here they are talking about who's going to be the greatest. They were ceremonially washing their hands as a sign of cleansing of the inward heart and soul, right? All the while they were doing the outward symbol, their souls were filled with the sin of pride and of self-serving, of self-glory and ambition. There was absolutely no connection between what they were doing on the outside with what was going on in their hearts Unfortunately, it's like a lot of people that come to the Lord's table in, in churches. They go through the motions. It's easy, right? Oh, it's just, yeah, we do this. And there's no searching on, on the inside what's, re- what's really going on in their lives. And that's why I've said a number of times that if the Holy Spirit, during that time, we take a time of quietness to prepare our hearts, to ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us at that moment, it's far better to... If we have to take care of a a sin issue to not take the communion elements, go away, come back, take care of what needs to be taken care of, then come back with a pure heart to partake in the bread and the cup. The next thing that happens is very interesting in uh, in that Passover meal. And we, to see that, we have to go to the Gospel of John. Now, in that culture, it was a custom because of the dusty roads and the paths and the fact that everyone wore sandals to wash the feet of guests when they came into a home. Uh, this was actually usually done by a servant, or if a servant was a, uh, wasn't available in that culture, it was probably either the wife or one of the daughters that would do that. So here they are in the upper room. They're washing their hands ceremonially, and it probably dawns on them that no one has washed their dusty feet yet. Now we're told that they were reclining at the table. Now this this is not how they always ate every meal with the families. This was a special thing they did for festivals and special occasions. 
So their feet were, as they're reclining, no doubt very close to the person that was reclining next to them and probably could be very easy to touch, touch their robes and the, and the dustiness and dirtiness uh, that was there. Um, now, the washing of the hands was symbolic. But at this particular point, the washing of feet was just plain practical, especially if you were reclining at a meal. And that evening, no servant had done it, and no disciple was about to stoop do, to do it. I mean, they were just talking about who's going to be the greatest, right? How, how can I, if I'm going to be the greatest, show that I'm, I'm going to be a servant? That, that, that doesn't compute. And that would, in their minds, probably disqualify them from real greatness. And I believe it was at that moment when they were arguing about greatness that Jesus got up from the table, took, out, took off his outer cloak, put a towel around his waist, and went to each of the disciples and started washing their feet. And by his actions there, he was strongly rebuking them by giving them a profound lesson in humility, a profound lesson on what humble love looks like, a profound lesson on meeting the needs of someone else and taking the role of a slave, taking the role of a servant. So he acted it out to them. And then Luke tells us that he rebuked them verbally as well. In Luke 22, it says, Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. I can imagine the disciples at that point felt pretty much put in their place. They were chagrined, and rightfully so. You know, humility, servanthood, it's not a real easy thing for us to do, is it? It goes against our nature. Human nature leans towards being served rather than serving. We want to climb the ladder of success, not hold the ladder for somebody else to climb it. Andrew Murray, who wrote much about prayer, wrote this. The only humility that is really ours is not that which we try to show before God in prayer, but that which we carry with us in our daily conduct. So as they move through the process of the Passover meal, they, they come to the table and, and settle in for the main meal. The, the washing is done, and they're all clean, and they settle down for the main meal. Uh, look at verse 21 again. And while they were eating, Matthew says, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Literally, to give into the hands of another. In Mark's account, in chapter 14, he says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. That's a rather shocking thing. I mean, if you think about it, eating together, sharing a meal together, was a symbol of friendship. You invite your friends to a meal, right? People that you trust. The idea of eating a meal with someone and then turning them over to their executioners is unthinkable. It was a shock. Folks, that's the worst kind of betrayal ever. When, when you think someone is your friend, I could probably have you raise your hands, and there, there's probably a number of you who have probably have experienced this in some of your friendships in the past. You've shared your life with them. You've taken them into your confidence, and all of a sudden they turn on you. 
Often it's due to pride or greed, as in the case of Judas, or power struggle. That happens in churches. It's a horrible thing. And the disciples were shocked. Verse 22 says, they were sad. The English word just doesn't quite do it. It doesn't actually depict their emotion. The Greek word for sad means to grieve, which is stronger than just being sad. But it's even more than very sad. The word it actually means vehemently or violently grieved. They were horrified. This was the most horrible thing they, they could imagine. And John 13, 22 says, His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them might do that. Had no, no idea. You know, it's rather amazing to me that they didn't suspect Judas. You know, we, we put ourselves in place. I would have guessed Judas right away. But they had no clue. One writer said Judas was a very capable hypocrite. A very capable hypocrite. He had them all fooled. In fact, they were so clueless that Luke twenty two thirty three says they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. They were just talking to each other. Who in the world? The fact that they had chosen Judas to be the treasurer of their group shows they didn't, they didn't really have any doubt about his integrity. I mean, that, that's how much he fooled them because other scripture tells us that he was a thief and he used to regularly dip out of the treasury. But they trusted him with their resources as little as, as it was. And interestingly, Jesus hadn't done anything to expose his hypocrisy. Isn't that interesting? In fact, if anything, Jesus had done everything he could to pull Judas close to him. Here he was sitting on his left side of the table, at the, at the table, which uh, Edersheim, the Jewish historian and scholar, says was a place of great honor. So Jesus had Judas sitting right next to him. The disciples had no idea, and you can imagine the murmuring going around the table. I can't believe it. Who in the world would do such a thing? Who do you think it could be? I can imagine that conversation. And then they started doubting themselves. Now remember, they had all just been strongly rebuked by Jesus because of their pride. And I think they started realizing that they, if they were acting like that, could it be possible that one of them could actually turn on Jesus themselves? as impossible to imagine as it probably was in their minds. And here in verse 22, it says, They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Self-doubt. They, hadn't, they, they thought it might be. Every one of them started to doubt and ask that question, Can it be me? You also remember that Peter, uh, the leader of the disciples, was also strongly rebuked a little bit separately when he said, no, Jesus, you can't wash my feet. Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. So by this time, they, they, they weren't sure of themselves at all. Now, if you think about it, there's, there's something really honest about that, isn't it? They knew that deep down in them there, there was a sinful principle uh, going on they could, that could be so ugly that it might even lead one of them to betray the one that they loved. You know, when we get so cocky about our faith and about our relationship with the Lord, 
how strong we are and how invulnerable we are to temptation and how knowledgeable we are about God's Word, we become so proud in our faith that we are so ready for a fall. So they're asking him, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? In verse 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. He's referring to that part of the meal that uh, they'd already been eating. They've, they've taken the unleavened bread and they were dipping it into the corset that we talked about the other Sunday. The paste is prepared uh, with different berries and fruit. Now, who's done that at this point? All of them. All of them had. They were all eating together. He said, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowls. John actually expands on what Jesus said in chapter 13, verse 18. Listen, I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. So in that statement, he was emphasizing, he wasn't specifically saying who it was yet, but he was emphasizing that one in that room, one of them, was going to do it. And in that scripture, he who shared my bread has turned against me, he was quoting Psalm 41.9, which refers back to the story of 2 Samuel chapter 16. Go back and read that later sometime. It was a story when David was betrayed by his good friend Ahithophel. Ahithophel then became a picture of Judas, the ultimate betrayer. So even though this news was a shock to the disciples, Jesus wanted to make sure that they knew that he himself was not a victim in this. He says in verse 24, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. In other words, don't think I'm a victim here. Don't think this is a plan gone wrong. Don't think this isn't the way it's supposed to be. It's exactly what God had pre-written in prophetic history. And no one is doing anything to me that is not a direct and immediate fulfillment of the eternal plan of God. Remember John wrote in Revelation 13.8 that he is the lamb who was slain from the creation of the world? It was all planned. And in Acts 2.23, when Peter was preaching, he said, This man was handed over to you by what? God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Now, lest we feel sorry for Judas. I've heard people feeling sorry for Judas. I've heard people say, well, you know, Judas, God used him. It was in his plan, so God, God saved him in the end. Folks, Judas was a betrayer. He was a betrayer by his own choice. He was a betrayer who rejected grace, who rejected the offer of salvation, who rejected the grace that Christ presented to him on a personal basis every day for three years. Jesus, a Judas, rejected all of that and made his own choices. And God, in his foreknowledge, knew that. One commentator put it this way, somehow in God's marvelous, mysterious sovereignty, he, talking about Judas, was planned right into the very midst of the betrayal of Jesus Christ to accomplish a holy purpose. 
So an unholy man in the hand of a sovereign God accomplishes a holy end. But, he says, it doesn't make him a good man. In fact, if you look at verse 24, Jesus says, But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. Woe, an expression of deep grief over that person because he is not going to be saved, because he is going to be contemned. He is a cursed man. Well, you might ask, if God is a loving God, why did God make Judas do that? You know, just to work out his own divine plan. That doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem right then our question would be based on the wrong premise. You see, God didn't make him do that. That was all on him. Judas, like the rest of us, had free will. And Judas chose money over Jesus. And God, in his sovereignty, knew Judas's heart, knew the rebellion that was there, knew that it was never going to change, and so he used him to accomplish his divine plan and his divine purpose. Then Jesus says about Judas at the end of verse 24, it would be better for him if he had not been born. It would have been better if the man had never existed than exist forever in hell where he would be punished for all of eternity. Now, it's interesting, Judas thought that he was hiding everything really well. Obviously, he was to to his friends, his other disciples. In fact, verse 25, it says, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Folks, we can't hide anything from the Lord. We need to remind ourselves always of that. We cannot hide anything from the Lord. We can keep up a pretty good pretext in front of other people. But even that wears thin, and people begin to see through if there, is not, if there is a lack of genuineness. Jesus said, by their fruit, you will know them. Now sometimes it takes a while for a tree to bear fruit. But sooner or later it's going to come out that instead of beautiful oranges or beautiful apples, it could be beautiful red poisonous berries that are produced. So all the disciples are asking the same question, Lord, is it I? It would have been a little bit strange and fairly obvious, wouldn't it, if Judas just sat there, didn't say anything? So he too asked the question, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi? And Jesus turned to him right on the left, gave him a very direct answer, you have said so. Now, at that moment, John 13, verse 23 to 26, tells us that Simon Peter leaned over to John. So you've got Judas, Jesus, John, Simon Peter. So Simon Peter leans over to John, um, and Simon said to John, ask him which one it is. So John, leaning back against Jesus, he's right there by Jesus, asked him, and this is a quote, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, now I'm just going to stop there just very briefly, and I think only John heard 
his response. Because you got Peter over here, and John is leaning back here, and all the other disciples are still murmuring, asking questions, what's going on here? So you got the murmur of all the disciples going on, and, J- and John leans over to Jesus, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then the most frightening thing that ever happened to Judas took place. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. This was not just an evil spirit that entered into Judas. Satan was not going to trust any of the lesser evil spirits when he was battling against Jesus, the Son of God. He took that on himself. The whole personification of evil, Satan himself, entered Judas. And at that moment, Jesus basically said to him, Get out. Jesus told Judas, what you are about to do, do quickly. And John tells us that the rest of the disciples didn't know why Jesus said that to Judas. He said it loud enough for for them all to hear. Judas knew. Jesus knew. John knew. The rest didn't know. And Judas got up and left. You see, Jesus got rid of him before they actually ate the rest of the meal. That's significant. Because he should have no part in the Lord's table. So he was dismissed. Sin, folks, has no part at the Lord's table. Then we come to our passage in Matthew, again in verse 26. It says, while they were eating. So Judas was gone, and they went back to finishing the Passover meal. Now, why this Passover? What was so important here? And and I I feel this is really significant. You see, the Passover is the oldest Jewish tradition other than the Sabbath that was in place, and it was ordained by God to be held every year, and every devout Jew did it every year. But now this Passover, after more than 1,500 years of Passovers, was the last, listen to this, last divinely sanctioned and authorized Passover ever held. Why do I say that? Because in God's eyes, it became extinct. You see, the Passover was a symbol. It was a foreshadowing of the reality. You know, when you're you're thinking about buying a new car... You know, you get online and you, you see this picture of this car and you pick out the color you want, you hit the button for the color and you, then you look at all the different accessories and, and you imagine it and you think about it and you dream about it and, and you keep that picture there and you keep going back to it. But once you actually go out and buy the car, you don't go back to the picture again. It's worthless. The Passover was a picture. Jesus was the reality. Jesus was the fulfillment. The Passover was no longer needed. It was no longer relevant. Jesus here celebrated the Passover as a way to bring it to its end and establishes a new memorial feast, which he begins to put in place in, right there in verse 26. 
And it's a feast of the new covenant, feast of the new promise, uh, not the old. It's no longer looking back to the Lamb in Egypt, but looking forward to the Lamb of God on a hill called Calvary. And as we come to verse 26, I just want to share briefly three things about the Lord's Supper. Probably nothing exceptionally new here, but there's a process, the meaning, and the duration. The process, the meaning, and the duration. Verse 26 starts out by saying, as they were eating. Okay, so we're talking about the process. Now, we don't exactly know when during the meal he started doing this. It was certainly after Judas had left. But at some point in the eating of the Passover, perhaps after their uh, minds and hearts had finally settled down after the, uh, the shocking news, it says, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, take and eat. Jesus gave thanks for God's provision. Isn't that interesting? I think there's two things. He was giving thanks because God provides food to sustain our physical bodies. We can never forget to do that. But he was also giving thanks for a much more profound reason. He was giving thanks for God's eternal provision for salvation through the slaying of the Lamb. The disciples didn't know that yet when he was giving thanks. We'll see that in a minute. Then he broke the bread. Why? Because it was flat, unleavened bread. That's what you do. You break it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. Then in verse 27, then he took the cup. Now, it wasn't a special cup, fancy decorated cup. It was one of the four <laughs> cups of wine that they, that they had. Uh, could have very well been the, the cup of blessing. And when he had given thanks again, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. So that was a process. Nothing really new about that. Nothing out of the ordinary. He was breaking the bread anyway. He breaks it and passes it around. But do you know what dawned on me as I was working this through? There's really no symbolism in the breaking of the bread. You know, it's often said, and I've said it myself, during a communion service as we give out the bread... We say, Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You heard that? But you know what? Jesus never said that. Check it out. All four Gospels. He never said that. His body was broken. And do you know why he never said it? His body was never broken. His head was pierced by a crown of thorns. His hands were pierced by nails. His feet were pierced by nails. His side was pierced by a sword. In fact, John tells us in chapter 19, verse 36, these things happened so the Scripture would be filled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That's from Psalm 34, 20. In Isaiah 53, uh, sorry, John continues, and another Scripture says, and he takes it from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, uh, they will look on the one they have what? Not broken, they have pierced. Isaiah 53, 5, you know this one well, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Every time he was pierced, his blood flowed for you and I. He was never broken in any sense of the word. And interesting, that was a freebie, and I stand corrected by it. You won't hear me saying that again. So that was the process. So what about the meaning? 
Well, the meaning comes at the end of verse 26 when he said, this is my body. This is my body. Again, he doesn't say anything about being broken. Now, that was something brand new. Brand new. Remember the unleavened bread was a way of uh, symbolizing when they left Egypt that they had to leave all the life of Egypt behind in that old, old life, lifestyle. And the baking of the new bread that had no leaven in it symbolized that they were not taking anything out of Egypt. But now it's something different. Unleavened bread no longer refers to that which was not influenced by the evil of the world. Unleavened bread now means, as Jesus said, my body. My body. And he just transformed Passover. Boom. Now that takes authority, folks. That takes authority. You don't mess with something that God has ordained. He ordained the Passover. But then Jesus is God in human flesh. He can change anything he wants, and he did. And having ended the old way of doing things, he now initiates the new and says, I want you to take and eat this bread as representing my body. And as he gives the bread to his disciples, it shows his willingness to give his body as a sacrificial lamb for you and for I. Then in verse 28, he says, referring to the cup, this is my blood of the covenant. Which covenant? The new covenant. The new promise. The new order of things. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. That's only possible through the body and blood of Jesus. All throughout the Old Testament, whenever God made a covenant, whether it was Abraham or Moses or Noah, there was a sacrifice laid on the altar. And all that pointed to Christ who would be the final sacrifice every time. And that's why Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so Jesus says, when you take this cup, it's not to remind you anymore of the blood of the lamb back in Egypt that was put put on the doorposts and the lintels of those doors. From now on, it's to remind you of my blood, which is going to be shed on the cross. So with those two elements, Jesus transformed the meaning of the Passover. The old is gone, the new is here. And now we celebrate the Lord's Supper to remember and celebrate the death of Christ on the cross. Because his death and subsequent resurrection has given us a new new life for all of eternity. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How many? For as many who would call on the name of the Lord not just for the Jews there, not just for his disciples, it's for everyone, Jew and non-Jew. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So how long are we supposed to keep, keep this up? Well, the Passover ended that night. And there are still a lot of people who observe it, but, in reality, uh, but, but it really has no purpose any longer because by celebrating it, you're ignoring the true feast of redemption. So if that ended then, how long do we celebrate the new? Well, in verse 29, Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it 
new with you in my Father's kingdom. So we are to celebrate this until Jesus comes back at his second coming, which we talked about in Matthew 24 and 25. He was telling them that he was going to die, that his blood was going to be shed, but he threw them a word of encouragement even in the midst of this. He's saying, I'll be back. I will be back. And when I come back, we're going to sit down again and we're going to celebrate in my Father's kingdom. Then it will no longer be the lamb on the cross. It won't be certainly the the lamb back in Egypt, but it will no longer be the lamb on the cross. It's going to be the lamb on the throne that we'll be celebrating. You know, it's amazing that right up until the day he died, Jesus was a servant. Jesus was a servant. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And even the evening before he died, he showed his disciples and us how to be a servant. You see, that's, that's God's way. That's how God wins people. Not by being proud or haughty or judgmental. That's Satan's way. We need to be so careful of pride or any other sin in our life. God takes that very seriously. Our, a prayer that we should be praying regularly is, is David's prayer in Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Why anxious? Because that's, that's due to doubt. That's why we're anxious. See if there's any offensive way in me. And lead, lead me in the way everlasting. That's when God can use us in humility. The other thing that is so encouraging to me is knowing that Jesus was not a victim of the scheming of man. He was in total control as he willingly gave his life for us. And that's his way, and that's an example for us. And what did the Father do? Back in Philippians again, he exalted him, didn't he? He exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And folks, that's what we celebrate. A risen Lord, a victorious Lord, a Lord that gives us victory in our own lives. Salvation by the Lamb exalted by the King. Father, this morning we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for the tremendous love that you had to have for us in order to give up your only Son. For you to come in the form of this weak, sinful man, you were without sin. You took it on in humility so that we could have that opportunity to have a relationship with you. And Father, with that, we can be victorious with Christ. Christ rose from from the dead. Christ rose in victory. And we who have accepted Jesus Christ, we have risen in victory. Yes, we are still in our bodies here, but, but spiritually we have the victory in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that that will be a reminder always but that we should not be using that as something to lord it over others, but in humility and meekness, in servanthood, be reaching out and touching other people's lives, showing them what humble humility is all about and why. 
So, Father, do a new work in our life. We thank you for the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the bread. We thank you for the cup and what that means for us. And we praise you and we celebrate that. In Jesus' name, amen.